0: First, I wanted to say that um, you see me using these pieces of paper and referring to this sutta from the Miracle Discourses. And uh, at the end, I will give you a list. And all of these are on access to insight. So you can easily Google them. I'll just give you the name and the number. And also, if you want, that's, if you have a little financial money, <laughs> uh, you might be able to get, either on the... digitally or in paper, the full translation of the numerical discourses by Bikobody, which is like that big, And you cannot find it in the library at the moment because I borrowed it. <laughs> I am the one who took it. Because I'm checking the one I found on access to insight which are translated by Tani Saro and then the one which are translated by Biku Bodhi and they say a bit the same but they don't use the same vocabulary. So anyway, you can check them either side. So what I wanted to look at first is a little the connection of the theme of the day-to-day the loving-kindness meditation. And to point out that when the Buddha, I mean, the Buddha recommended to cultivate the three divine abodes, the three Brahma Vihara, the three quality of loving-kindness, compassion, rejoicing, and equanimity. But it's very important to see what was his idea behind it, outside of being a good method to concentrate, is that actually he sees them, I think, in two ways. That at one level, to cultivate those things helps them to develop them more, but at another level, they also enable us, helps us to dissolve other things. And I often see the Buddha when he teaches in the sutta as these two tracks. He's trying to make us develop something and at the same time to dissolve something else. So it's not just about developing or not just about, in a way, dissolving. It's actually the two working in tandem. And I think it's very important to see that because sometimes I feel you could nearly say we're too focused on dukkha. We're too focused on what is difficult. And then... All the time people might have the impression we just focus on happiness and nothing else. When I think the idea is that actually we work together on these two aspects and they complement each other. And that really will help us on the path. And so in this sutta, which is called the means of escape, and it's in the sixes of the numerical discourses, the Buddha suggests that there are six properties, that's Tanisaro translation, Bhikkhu Bodhi says six elements, and what they mean, there is six elements of escape. And which are the six? I want to talk of four, and then the later two I'll mention at another time. So the first one is escape from ill will. And so, I will just tell you of Tani Saro translation first, and after that I won't use it because I find it often too weird. (laughs) (laughs) That's the problem with Tani Saro, is when I really to get used to it. So that's what he said. This is the escape from ill will, good will, as an awareness release. But actually it's cheto vimuti, which is, deliverance of mind, Stephen is starting to think of it as deliverance of heart, and Bhikkhu Bodhi used liberation of mind. Let's go for this tonight, if I may. So, the Buddha sees loving kindness as a liberation of the mind in terms of escape from ill will. And so basically he's saying that loving kindness is going to counteract if we have this kind of like angry, agitated, aggressive, that this can help a little to some degree. So it's kind of, in a way, goodwill, seeing the goodness in people, wishing well for others. And to me what is interesting is that often... If we focus negatively on somebody and we get upset with them, generally we go into this totalizing. They're always bad, they're always terrible. I hate them. And so you really, there is no place for goodwill. But if we open to loving kindness, as I was suggesting, it helps us to see that yes, that person might have acted in a mistaken way, in a hurtful way, but it doesn't mean that they're always mistaken, always hurtful. So it's kind of opening to a wider perspective. Then you have the next one. The liberation of the mind, of compassion, is an escape from viciousness or the escape from the thought of harming. So here he's saying that if we have compassion for the suffering of others, we will have less thought of harming the person. And to me, this is something which I find really helpful. Like if somebody has been difficult or hurtful or whatever it is, Generally, what I try to see is that often, not always, but often they do it because they're suffering, because they have difficulty. And again, they're not always like this. But generally, and so it is the same to look at us, that if we, in a way, vengeful, to also see that generally comes, from a suffering place. So how can we also address compassionately our suffering place? So it's not just looking at the suffering of others, but also at the suffering of ourselves. And to me then that's why it's very useful to look at terms term of condition, to see we're not always angry, vengeful, but with certain conditions this can arise. And so trying to understand the condition. And to me, that's really part of compassion. Try to understand the suffering condition that gives rise to fear. Then you have altruistic joy or appreciation as an escape from resentment or discontent. And we'll do this meditation toward the end of the week and it's basically about appreciation but it's also about rejoicing with others. And often we feel that something is missing. Something is missing, something is not right. If only I had what they had. So often we look at what we don't have. And with this practice it's really looking what is it we have. And also, how can we rejoice with others? And the last one is equanimity. And equanimity is seen as an escape from passion or escape from lust. And personally, I will look at it again. I will, tonight, I will question a little the translation of that term. And if it might not be more useful to look in terms of grasping, That's what I want to look tonight and tomorrow in a way as why do we grasp? What is a mechanism for grasping and how can meditation make a difference? How can equanimity make a difference to this grasping mechanism? Then there was a the day before, not today, but yesterday in the discussion, there was talk of this moment where, having a certain experience, one would be incapable of falling away, incapable of de- declining, and as such, being close to nirvana. So you have a sutta about no falling away. And what is interesting is what the, the Buddha gives for what are the sign that a person is not going to fall away, is not going to decline in the nama, and is close to nirvana. And he says, this is a case where there is a person is consummate in virtue, guard the doors to its sense faculties, no moderation is in eating, and is devoted to wakefulness. So again, this doesn't point out a moment, but actually it looks at practices. It's really about cultivation in experience. So the first one is about cultivating ethics. The next one is back to this guarding the sense door, and I want to look at this this evening. Then you have, and this is a good experience for you during this retreat, moderation in eating. (laughs) So you see, if you moderate in eating, you're close to nirvana. (laughs) That's an easy thing to do. And then the last one is actually to be devoted to wakefulness. And actually the way um, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates that, it means to dissolve the obstructive quality. <clears throat> so basically it's about in a way engaging, what I would call creatively engaging with obstacles, right? creatively engaging with limitation. So that's the sign that we will not fall away. So that's kind of easy, I thought. Then there is another little sutta I really wanted to share with you. Because often... There is this experience we have, and it was slightly mentioned, about in a way we sit in meditation or we are in our daily life, and either when we sit in meditation we think about something from the past or when we are in daily life, we do something and then we kind of in a way feel guilty about it. And then this is what the Buddha says, and the Buddha has a lot of short text on fool. What makes you a fool? What makes you a foolish person? And that's one of those. What makes a foolish person? And he says, A foolish person take responsibility is burdened by not what is his or earth. Another foolish person do not take responsibility for what is his or earth. And so here is saying, that actually, I mean, if you want to feel guilty, fair enough, but actually feel guilty for a good reason. Don't feel guilty for something really you had nothing to do with, you could not help, etc., etc. And I think when we look at the past, I think when we sit here and we look at the past to know that we cannot change the past. We can learn from it, but we really cannot change it. But what we can know is that at that time, very likely this was the best we could come up with. Now we might come with something much better, but we did not know that then. So I think the Buddha is saying, don't be burdened. Don't feel responsible for what is not yours. But do feel responsible for what is yours. And so in a way, is becoming more aware of in a way cause and effect. Causing harm to myself, to others, and to know what does that feel like? How does it hurt others? And so in we way, becoming conscious of the condition. We don't do this all the time. But when we do it, how do we do it? What happens? So in a way, becoming creatively engaged with it. Then there is another sutta, which is about, back to what I was mentioning yesterday, samatha and vipassana, and here the translation is serenity and insight, calmness and clarity. And what is interesting is, again, what he sees a function, what the Buddha sees as a function of each. And you see that serenity, calmness, concentration. The mind is developed in such a way that craving is abandoned. So again, this this ability to anchor, to be calm, as a mean to dissolve craving. And then, insight. If insight is cultivating wisdom is developed and so ignorance is abandoned and we'll talk more about this during the week so what i like to look at now is that is in a way often is translated as desire as lust craving passion And personally, today, I would like to look more at what I would call grasping. And at what Stephen was mentioning this morning about the fact that through the senses, we come in contact. So we come in contact through the senses. And what happened at that moment? Because I think this is what we are cultivating in the meditation that when we come into contact with something, instead of grasping automatically, we create a space so we can make a choice. I see meditation as that. And you could say that when you sit in meditation, when you become distracted and you come back, this is what's happening at a micro level. And what is interesting with that experience in meditation is that you are not sitting there thinking, Oh, I have the thought. Now I make the choice to come back. That's generally not the way it works. Generally, as soon as you see the thought, generally you back. You back with the breath, you back with the moment, you back with the sound, you back with the loving kindness. So actually. What is interesting is that when I talk about it, it seems like I am sitting there saying, now I make the choice to do this. What I'm saying is that actually, as we practice, actually it's not a choice that we make, it's a choice that happens. Through the seeing, through the seeing of the thought, and with the help of the anchor, the returning to the anchor. So it's kind of like, it's nearly, you could say, seamless. Of course, you might tell me, but if I have a really obsessive thought, I might come back, but really for a millisecond, a millisecond, and then psh, I'm taken over again. And then I sit and I come back, and then... And then that, I think, is more a question of the intensity. So we can also look at that. So the question is, we come into contact, we see things, we hear things, we smell things, we taste things, we have physical sensation, we have thought. One moment we don't have the thought, next we have it. One moment we don't hear the sound, next the sound appears. One moment we are at lunchtime and we smell food and we taste food, next moment we don't. So it's kind of that moment where we see something, we hear something, we taste something. There is that moment of contact. And to me, what I think we have to try to do is not so much to let go of the grasping, but to actually understand how does it work. Because I think that meditation helps us to choose. Not that we kind of consciously always choose, but sometimes it happens on its own to either grasp or to creatively engage. And I think in a way doing a meditation retreat is giving more power, giving more muscles to the power of creative engagement, instead of kind of falling into the habitual grasping and what happened with it. Then it becomes interesting to see how how do I grasp? How does it manifest? What happens? And so generally when we grasp, we, we kind of tighten around what we grasp at. I think this is one of the signals of grasping. It's often a certain kind of tension. Also the other thing with grasping is that we grasp at something and generally we stuck with it. So in a way we stuck to what we're grasping at. But I think it's very important to see that one of the main points of grasping is identification. As soon as we grasp, we identify. I, me, mine. This sound that I hear, I like. This food that I taste, I dislike. This, etc., etc. Generally, I, me, mine. The, The two go together. The grasping... And the identification very much go together. So as soon as we grasp, we identify. Then we reduce ourselves and limit <coughs> ourselves to what we grasp at. And then, and that's what is a problem with grasping, we magnify. Because we reduce. This is very important to see. We grasp, so we reduce, and then we magnify. And then the thing seems, that's what we go into this is, Big, this is too much, always, never, because of that. Because of the magnification process of grasping. Let's give me, let's, okay, let me give you an example. Okay, we'll use uh, as an example this bear. Hmm. This is quite a nice bear. I mean, I go to different places and you have different bells. This is quite a nice bell. does quite a nice sound. So you hear the sound of the bell, or you see the bell. And I see the bell, and I hear the sound, and I feel, Woo. I like it. This is a really nice bell. Ooh, I want one like that. Where am I going to get it? How can I get it? Which shop did I get it? Could I get it on the internet? Oh yes, on the internet there are so many different things. I should look it up. Have you noticed that at the beginning I am with the sound, the beauty of the bell and very quickly I am with the abstraction and the getting of the bell. So I move from the experience to abstraction. Grasping often creates abstraction. So we move into idea and in you know, we live experience. Or I arrive here, never been to Gaia House. Not bad, but I have had much better bell. I mean really at Gaia House, you know I mean is this the only bell they can get I mean what kind of place is that? How can I meditate with this kind of bear? I can't meditate. I need something like more tinkling, or I think (laughs) more mystical, or more poetic. I mean, this is—I mean, this is going to be a very bad retreat, you you know. And so you could, from just hearing that sound, seeing the bear, go into this huge thing. And we often do this. This is the thing. We often do this. And so in a way there is this grasping. You can grasp positively and you can grasp negatively. It's the same thing. In either either way you are magnifying. You are amplifying. And this is really a sign of grasping. When you start seeing yourself amplifying. Proliferating around something in abstraction, then connecting it, associating with many other things, it has nothing to do with, because it, then it kind of spread. So either we proliferate and we go into abstraction in this way, or and that's also very difficult and can be painful, we exaggerate. This is awful. This is terrible. This is fantastic. This is the best thing in the universe. <laughs> and so the thing is, if you, if you go into the negative exaggeration, then you go into, I cannot stand it. And I don't know if you experience this today, sitting in meditation. <laughs> when is he going to ring the bell? You know? I cannot stand it another you know minute. And at other time, you sit there and you have all the time in the world. This is interesting, time when we sit in meditation. Our time can be so elastic. Sometimes it can go really fast, and sometimes it can be so slow. And a lot has to do with if we grasp, at whatever element in that experience, in that moment. Or we can, so in a way, it's to see that. So you can either exaggerate negatively, and that really makes us generally, it's very painful. This is awful. This is terrible. Like, you know, I don't know if you have pain in your knee, especially the one sitting on the floor. And if you have pain in the knee, pain in the knee, and then you go into my knee, my pain, it's going to fall off. I'll never be able to walk again and off you go. I mean, if it's really painful, please sit on a chair. (laughs) But the the way to know if it's uh, problematic or not is that if you stand up and the pain goes, then it's fine. If you stand up and the pain continues, then you have to change posture. Then you really have to do something about it. But it's very interesting how according to if we grasp or not, the way we're going to be about the sensation is going to be very different So you have one sensation, and then we have different things around it that will come or not, if we grasp, identify with it. Or, we grasp positively. This is fantastic. This is the greatest thing in the universe. And then the problem with this slightly is that, yes, of course, it's fantastic and it's great, but... Generally, it's never as great as a grasping add to it. This is a thing. You see something in the shop window and you think, wow, if I have this, it's going to change my life. And you get it and it doesn't change very much. It doesn't last very long. So because of that, we imbue more importance into people, work. I'm not saying that work is not important Relationship you cannot appreciate, but the more you grasp and you exaggerate and amplify, the less you are with what is really going on here and now. So creative engagement is dissolving the magnification, dissolving the limitation and actually creatively engaging with the whole experience. And so I think that's what I would suggest. You kind of try to explore during this week, each in your own way, with the contact. I mean, one thing you can uh, play around with at the moment, however surprising this is, is with the heat. <laughs> you know, The heat, it gets hot. And you think, well, this is England. It's not hot. But it's hot. (laughs) And myself, I find interesting, generally through the day, two or three times, I get really hot. And I just know, oh, I'm hot. And then as soon as it passes, then I'm cool again, because I'm less hot than I was before. And what I find interesting is just that changing nature. The fact that if we grasp we kind of solidify around it. But if we just kind of go with the sensation, and how long is this going to last? How does it feel if I do not add anything to it? How does it feel if I don't identify with it? But just experience it as it arises and as it passes away. And so, in a way, we can play just with the temperature. In the morning, it's a little cool. Then it gets a little hot. And then what is interesting is that in Gaia House, you have different weather patterns. You have, you know, different uh, geographical area. So you feel you're hot, then you go to the cold area, then you think you're cold, then you go to the warm area. So it's, it's wonderful. Then we can really play... How does it feel? Do I kind of, I'm hot and I think, oh, I must take something off. Oh, I'm cold, I need to have a jersey. I'm not saying you should not wear a jersey or take something off, but notice how, you know, we pass through the different zones and actually we're not there for very long. But nearly immediately, if we are in a cooler zone, hmm, I need something. Hotter zone, hmm. And so we kind of, very quickly, we react to the zone. So, in a way, it's how can I creatively engage? So, in a way, you have coming in contact with physical sensation. As you do the walking meditation, as you do the sitting meditation, how do I engage with sensation? So, re- I mean, the point is not to have more pain than we need to, but it's kind of seeing How can I be with this? And tomorrow we're going to do awareness of the body. And it's really interesting to, when we go with this quietness and clarity, this anchoring, this looking into the sensation, how actually it's just a sensation. But then it really depends on our state of mind. If you are very distracted, we're actually not very aware of the pain. If we are very concentrated, we can be in the pain very differently. But if we are in between, that's where it's generally we feel worse. Because we feel, ah, this is... And so it's interesting to see. We have the same pain at different time of the day. But we might be with it actually differently. <coughs> according to our state of meditation, according to our state of mind. So you know, we're exploring that. Same with the sounds, sounds are interesting because we sit in meditation, we did listening meditation yesterday. So generally, we sit in meditation and then we hear a bird, tweet, 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 tweet. And generally, we like it. Nice to be at Gaia house, nice to be in nature. And then it sounds like at some point something goes somewhere, a motor, engine, and we hear And then you think, hmm, engine? What's an engine doing at Guy House? Don't they know we are meditating? You know? Or somebody might cough. Or somebody might be sitting in one of the chair which creaks. Or... Somebody might breathe heavily. I hope not. But I mean, they have to breathe. <laughs> so in a way, what do we do? I mean, this is interesting. We have different sounds, and at one level, those sounds are not doing very much to us. They come and they go. But noticing, what happened? when I hear this one, when I hear that one. And what is interesting with the sound inside the room. Sometimes we think, hey, I mean, what's the matter with them? Can't they sit still? And all the time you're sitting there and you think, poor, poor person. They might be suffering so much. And then you have this really compassion for them. And so you hear the same sound and you can have a very different reaction. You can have a resentful reaction or you can have a compassion, compassionate reaction. And just to observe it, I think this is in a way, we're not trying to be always compassionate, but just to notice, how does it feel? How does it feel when I hear a sound and compassion arise? And how does it feel when I hear a sound and resentment arise? How does it feel? What happened in the mind? Does the mind just stay with the experience, or does the mind build up and proliferate? So just observing, just creatively engaging. I mean, one thing in daily life that we have, and here I think there is a great, great practice, we can get lots of practice in daily life, is listening to words. Words at one level are just little sonorous waves. They come and they go. And you might be sitting in meditation thinking, He said this three years ago. How could he say this? But it's gone. But you're keeping it. And so in a way, just noticing, what is it am I keeping? What is it I'm sticking to? Because sometimes we stick to things which are not here. I mean that you stick to things that are here, fair enough. But to stick to something that's not here That's interesting. Then, of course, I mean, one thing about words, I think which is important, especially in conversation, is this question. When somebody says something to us, especially if it's unpleasant, I think one question to ask is, is this about me or is it about them? Because often we kind of grasp and identify, this is about me. But half of the time, if somebody says something to us, it's not about me, it's about them. And that's why I think inquiry comes in. Creative awareness comes in to know, have I done something or I have done nothing? And then how can, that's why it's very difficult to hear something and not to be influenced by it. And so we can either grasp or reject or we can creatively engage with the words that we hear. Then there is things that we see. And again, I think this is a meditation we can do, especially when we walk, either during the walking meditation or during the free walking meditation, To just, or when you're just around the place, or when you look at people or whatever, just to notice we see something. What do we do? Hmm. Often what I do is that I look at the shoes. I'm always looking for kind of in, in the summer sandals. And so I'm always interested in people's sandals. Mm. Mm. You know, so I kind of look at the sandals. That's where my that's what I do. So very quickly I sort out the sandals. Mm. And so in a way it's where do our eyes go? And what do we do? I, mean, I think it's fair enough to look at sandals. But then, do I think about sandals the whole day? No, I just look at them. I live it. But to see, what do we see? What do we notice? And then, what do we do with it? And that's something we can play around with, like kind of just doing seeing meditation. Because when we're in daily life, there are lots of things we come into contact visually. Lots of things on TV, in the newspaper, in the, when you are in the bus, when you go around, advertisements. I mean, I love, when I'm in London, some of the advertisements, you know, like, you know, Zen shampoo. And I think, Zen shampoo? <laughs> you know, I find it fascinating. You know, what do we do? All these different things. And so that's part of the practice. How do we come in contact visually? What do we do with it? And I think with visual contact is also to see that sometimes we actually grasp at something that's not there, but that we would like to be there. Like when we, uh, many years ago in 2000, we went to live in France (laughs) And first, we had the guest room, and the guest room had this very old-fashioned, dark oak furniture. And Stephen hated them. And I could see the look. He would go into the room, and he would get that look. And I could see, he was looking at those furniture. Next to them, he was seeing this fantastic, light, beautiful, elegant furniture. And, I mean, compared to the one he saw in his imagination, the one that was there really fell short. But I mean, it still where. People could sleep in the bed and everything, you know. And it was interesting. Often we do that. We look at something, and actually we compare it to something else which is not there. I'm not saying you should not get good furniture or whatever, but to notice that we do that. We might do that with people. We might do this to ourselves when we look at ourselves in the mirror. You look at ourselves in the mirror and think, This is me? <laughs> I look like this? <laughs> but I don't see myself like this. I find that very interesting with my mother. Oh, with Stephen's mother was the same. When I took a picture of her, she was saying, I don't look like this. <laughs> very interesting. You know? So, in a way, what is it we see when we say, I don't look like this? What is it we see? What is a comparison? What do we compare it with? What is going on there? Basically, we're grasping at something that's not there. So, how can we creatively engage with what we see? Also, what we smell. We can always smell something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, might, I mean, we have the door open, so it's very nice. At lunchtime, we have the smell, and you feel... Mm-mm. And at lunchtime, I was sitting there, and I was smelling pepper. I don't eat pepper. <laughs> I never eat pepper. Red, yellow, whatever, I don't eat pepper. But I really can smell it. <laughs> I have very... So I could say, mmm, pepper... In vegetarian circle, they're very obsessed by pepper, I've noticed. That's what I think. (laughs) So, I smell pepper, but I've made peace with pepper. It took me a long time, but I've made peace with it. Now I can look at it with creative engagement. (laughs) Because I don't have to eat it. You see, I can smell it, I can see it. I don't have to eat it, which means I don't have to grasp at the idea that I have to eat it. I can eat something else. So, you know, what do we do? We smell something. We might smell something we like. You might smell the flower here. Mmm, I want one like this. Where does this come from? But can we just smell it? This is a, a bit, you know, it's, we go so fast, so fast in the commenting, so fast. Can we just enjoy Can we just appreciate? So when I smell pepper, I think, ah, the people who like pepper will be happy. Some people will be happy. Some people must like that. So then you have food, and that's a really good place to practice, you know, your last enjoyment here. You know, no TV, no music, but you have food especially you have lunch because I mean breakfast and dinner you know a little what's going to come porridge more cooked less cooked in the evening the soup always a little of a mystery but But that's interesting too because you look they tell you what it is you only can know when you taste it if you're going to like it or not so that's good experience. This is good creative engagement. So lunchtime. So you see the food, and mm, so you have visual contact, and you think mm, looks good. So you put a little more, and then you sit down, you start to eat, and it's really not what you thought it was. <laughs> And then you think, how am I going to get rid of it without anybody seeing it? I had this experience in London recently. You know, you have this big display, the London day-long, you know. And I saw something. It looks, it looked to me like it was a frittata, like it was a tortilla, you know, eggs and potato. So I took a piece of it. I thought that should be fine. And then I started to eat it, and I realized that actually it was an Indian type of something. (laughs) Extremely uh, hot chili. So I I could not eat it. But somebody kindly ate it for me. That was real true compassion, I (laughs) said. So uh, food, we come into contact with the food. What do we do? I mean, it's nearly immediate. You eat something. And if you like it, nearly immediately you think, I want more of it. I mean it's nearly like kind of and then you look, you know, is there going to be some left? (laughs) (laughs) Or you start to eat cherry or strawberry. Mm. So you see, you barely finish you. So in a way, can we I think creative engagement doesn't mean you should not we should not eat, but it's more about observing creatively engaging, playing. What happens when I eat? What do I do? Can I chew? Can I enjoy? Can I appreciate? And I think that's what the Buddha said about the food. Like he said, you know, to be moderate in eating. And what he saw was not that you should kind of eat ascetically. We said that you eat for the benefit of the body, for the benefit of the health. For the benefit of your path and for the benefit of benefiting others, and so when we eat, can we be more in that in the that's what we used to do in Korea when we eat cer- ceremoniously in Korea, you recite various uh, uh, poems, and one of the one you recite before you eat is about how this food has been created, cultivated by others. How you are benefited from the energy, the labor of others. And so often when we eat, what we look more is the pleasure we get out of it. And I think if we creatively engage with the food, we're actually engaging with, in a way you could say, the whole thing. The fact that we got this food, we got this food thanks to the people who cultivated it, the rain, thanks to how it came to us, thanks to the manager who are cooking it, spending the time cooking the food, and then how it comes to us. And we go into it, eat the food because it's going to give us energy. And of course, also it can give us pleasure. But so can we creatively engage with it? Instead of contact, I like it, I want more, I don't like it, I need to get rid of it. So it's in a way really engaging with the contact. And so in a way, seeing also, we come into contact with thoughts. This is something to really see. That one moment we have a thought, next we don't have it. One moment we don't have it, next we have it. And I think one of the key of the meditation is to start to make us aware that we have thought. Not so that we feel bad about the thought we have, but to become aware, ah, I have this thought. Is it a useful thought? Is it a harmful or harmless thought? Can I continue with this? I mean, as we sit, we can have really clear, compassionate thoughts. And, of course, we can explore them. And then they might become repetitive. We just try to remember what was this beautiful thought. If it was a good one, it would come back. Leave it. You don't have to repeat it. And sometimes we have thoughts which are very painful, do we need to continue to go around with them? Can we just let them be? But in a way, in order to let them be, we first have to see, oh, they've arisen. Oh, I am grasping at them. And by grasping at them, I'm creating tension. I'm creating amplification. So in a way, before we can let go, we actually need to creatively engage. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yeah. I'm just going to say thanks very much, Black, because you read my mind. I wanted to know about grasping. And so it's fantastic to hear it very uh, humorously from his world. It's a pleasure. I think what is very important to see (coughs) is that we're not going for an eradication of grasping. Because what I think we have is that we have over grasping. I mean, we need a bit of it. In order to survive, I would say we need 50%. But possibly, what is interesting to look is, am I in the 99%? When am I going down? When am I going up? You know? And just to, to see that there are different levels of grasping. We're not trying to stop it. We're trying to actually diminish its intensity. We're trying to understand the process of it. We're trying to transform it, actually, in creative engagement. So we don't stick and instead we creatively engage, which actually then allows space to be more there and will allow more uh, possibility for our creative potential. Yeah. I struck that you said 50% we need of grasping. I wonder uh, in which way do we need it? Uh, we need it just to survive. We need it just to survive. I mean, see a child, a baby. A baby is born, the first thing he does is that. So, I mean, he needs to, to kind of, you know, grasp. In order and so if you look even at the monks and the nuns at the time of the Buddha, the Buddha talked about they had four requisites. They had needs. And so they had the need for food, they had the need for shelter, they had the need for clothes, And they had the need for uh, medicine. And so they had these needs. And before this need, if they were not satisfied, they could not meditate. So I think it's kind of in a way, seeing that's why I don't say desire. Because I think it's more about, what, in a way, the question, what is it I need? And what is it I want? And what is it I want because it's exaggerated by the grasping? That's what is interesting. Because we need to eat, we need to breathe, we need clothes, shelter, we need work. I would even say we need relationship in different ways. We need love. (coughs) You know, it's basically what is it that helps us to flourish? So what is it that we need? And then what is it that we want? And that that generally comes with this amplified Grasping identification. So that's what the the 50% for me is about basic, basic need in order to survive. Yes? Is your idea, the notion of creative engagement, how to effectively fully know what's going on when it's going on? It's actually more than that. It is that Definitely it is that, and that's why I talk about creative awareness. But I see creative, you see, often there is this idea of uh, non-grasping as non-attachment or as detachment. And personally, I don't think this is what it is about. I think the non-grasping is about the dissolution of the amplification, of the exaggeration, of the tension. And if that goes, then actually lots of space is created in which our creative potential can operate. And so I, I say engagement because it's something which is active. I see that it's kind of engaging creatively with what's going on. So it's not just about knowing something. To me, there is an engagement with what is happening like nearly a creative response to the content and not just an observation of it. But it's true that sometimes, in a way, it's just about just being observing what's going on, and that's a creative engagement. And then sometimes you have to do something. So yes, it's true that you can have a creative engagement which is just about seeing and knowing, and sometimes it's about, I would say, doing something.